you know, you've got to be a part of the story as well. If you want people to follow you too, instead of just coming for the guests and bouncing. Welcome back to the Spreading Success Podcast. My name is Ram Raviv and I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Tom Ward. Tom, how are you doing today, man? I'm great. Awesome, man. So for the listeners that are not familiar with you, can you just give them a 30 to 60 second intro of who you are and what you do? Sure. So I have the Tom Ward Show um, channel on YouTube and also a podcast where I interview the biggest influencers in the game. We've had everyone from Jake Paul to David Dobrik to um, all these big viners now, Chase Hudson, uh, Addison Ray, everybody. And really, I take a different approach. Don't do too much gossipy stuff. Focus more on the business side. Because I also write for Forbes, and I post those in the article I write about. Yeah, that's awesome. So just kind of taking a step back, how did you get started with all this? What was the process? How did you kind of realize that this is what you wanted to do? Well, um, I started very late in life. I read a book and I wasn't happy in my career and I'm just, I'm a sales and marketing guy. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wasn't really happy. And I read this book called reinventing you, which you guys should check out. It's a great book, but she, her whole thing is you can change your narrative at any time, but you need evidence to do it. Like I can say I'm a hip hop expert, which I may or may not be, but if I don't have any evidence, like why does this old white guy know anything about hip hop? Right. But if I'm on in blogs, if I've been on podcasts about it, maybe I've been on TV about it, I've got some credibility. So her thing was the easiest way to do that is write. right. It doesn't cost anything. You could start a blog for free. So that's what I did. Started writing. I started TomWard.com, started writing and someone from Forbes saw my blog and liked it. So it kind of invited me on to, to write about uh, influencer marketing for them. And then from there, you just kind of saw like, hey, I can actually talk to these people. And then you kind of started the show from there. What was the transition? Yeah, I learned real quick. So, so you know, I always like interviewing people. And uh, so really the first one I did on camera was I was interviewing the Bella Twins. I don't know if you know them, but two wrestlers, they have reality shows and stuff, great girls. But I was interviewing them and they're beautiful. So I was thinking, why not get these, why not get them on camera, right? Instead of an 800 word article. So I pitched it to Forbes. They said, sure. To send the camera person down, we have to meet at their, the, the Bella Twins office. We have to do all this prep work. Um, I have to work with the camera people. All you guys. Anyway, it's all this work. And then when they finally released the video, it was two minutes and I wasn't in it. <laughs> so I go with that, forget that I'm done. So I'm like, never again. I go, I want to be in the interview, right? I want the story to be about me a little bit too, for selfish reasons. But my whole thing was I, I had a 45-minute conversation with them. And by the way, they put that on their reality show, Total Divas. So I was on their show, but I couldn't make it to the Forbes video. So I was, I was kind of buttered. So I said, fuck this. I'm just going to do it myself. I can hire a camera guy and do it. Why not? And so from there, you just started your own kind of interview show. So it went from like a blog to trying to like create a different format. And then from there, you're like, wait, I could do this. For, for all, instead of blog posts, I can do this for every single time. And are you also incorporating blog posts into, you know, every episode as well? Or is that something you kind of put on the side? So to get a lot of big guests I have, I have to give them a Forbes article because my channel is not that big. So David Dobrik's not going to sit down 
for Tom Ward's channel, which has 25,000 subscribers, but he'll sit down with me to get an article in Forbes. And then I film that and I post that on my YouTube channel. So it's two separate things. So I'm interviewing them for Forbes. These people are used to being on camera anyway. So they say, yeah, sure, shoot it, do whatever you want with it. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we'll kind of get into that um, a little after when, when we talk about, you know, the strategy of, of how you get the, these people. Um, but obviously, you know, the, the people you're talking to, I, I saw this a lot, a lot of criticism on the YouTube channel. They're, they're saying that you're a lot older than, than these people and that like, why are you interviewing them? So like, how, how did, how do you react to that? And like, how did people react when you were first getting started with something like this? Well, I will correct you on that, sir. I think I've only got three comments about being old slash creepy in all of my YouTube videos. So 99.9999% of people never bring it up, which I think is odd because I think it is weird to me. I'm as old as their parents. Like, why am I sitting down with a TikTok star? Isn't that bizarre? And I ask my wife and my manager that all the time. I go, I can't continue to do this forever. You know, I'm, I'm in my early forties. Like it's going to start looking ridiculous, but no one comments on it. I got one. I think on my last video, but before that, um, I can't even tell you the last comment I got like that. Um, so yeah, I think it's strange, but apparently the people watching don't for some reason. Yeah. I mean, um, like when I'm, I think what I was coming from, I think I saw you post something like that on, on your Instagram story that someone commented that. And I was like, Oh man, like, well, why are they doing that to him? Like he's, he's crushing it. Um, and then, and then, yeah, so it was one comment I, I, I laugh at it. So I posted it, but so it's not all the time. It was just the one I thought it was funny. Yeah. And, and for me personally, like, obviously, like, obviously respect what you do a lot, but I feel like some people, um, especially if you bring up like top five hottest girls, it's like, you guys are in like completely different age ranges. Like what it, that means, like two different things. And it's just like, it's like, you know, you feel like you're, you're one of them. And I, I think that's really awesome, um, for that, but I, I can definitely see where, some people can kind of see the other side of that. Well, you know, so my whole thing is so I do silly TikTok games because um, you have the guests and people always look, want short-term content. So I do Tom's top five where I ask them top five YouTubers, top five snacks, top five anything. Um, for Bryce, he's kind of a ladies' man and I hope these girls love him. <laughs> and he talked about Instagram girls being in his DM. So that's why I asked him like, okay, who's the, the five hottest Instagram girls? But and hopefully this doesn't come across, but I try my hardest to not try to be cool because I watch a lot of these, like Holly Wire is a site that does similar stuff. And look at these hosts and they're well in their thirties and they're trying to be cool. And, you know, but it's so cringy to me. I am not cool. <laughs> I'm not trying to be cool. Um, I connect with them on the fact that I respect their business, that I'm a creator as well. So I like the creative process, how they grew. I think it's tips that their audience can take because everyone wants to be an influencer now. But I try my hardest not to try to be cool and try to be on their level with that stuff because I'm not and it looks silly. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of that, obviously, you know, a lot of these you know, the, the cool stuff comes a lot with the, the preparation and kind of digging into seeing, you know, what these people actually do and what their life is like. So what goes into the preparation process for some of these interviews? I know you have a lot of the camera equipment um, and obviously some notes. So what does that look like? So just from like the prep for the actual interview or the cameras and all that stuff too? Um, we, we could do the actual interviews. Yeah. So um, I've got one tomorrow with Zach King. 
And so I've spent, you know, days, hours looking at his videos, watching other interviews he's done, because I try, I never want to do the same interview somebody else has done. I always want to um, kind of have my own perspective on it and touch on things that they didn't. So I just don't want to rehash it. So I watch other interviews they've done. I watch, I read articles about them. Um, I try to just, you know, get background information on them, where they're from, are they married or not, they have kids, all that stuff. So I spend hours and hours um, preparing because I think the more preparation you do, the easier it looks. When I when people watch my interviews, I want them to think that, hey, Tom just sat down with this person and he's just having a conversation like off the top of his head. It's not that. It's all the preparation that gets me there to make it look easy. Yeah, and and I, I listened to a little bit of your interview with David Dobrik and it did seem very natural flowing, but how much of that would you say is actually like scripted or bulleted? How much of that is like actually free for all? Cause you know, you don't want to make it seem the whole thing is scripted. There obviously has to be some sort of natural flow to it. So I have cards maybe it's just the crutch or something. So I print, you know, questions on the cards, but the way I look at it is I don't look at my notes ever. Um, the only time I do is like at the end, if they're promoting something that they want to hit on, I want to make sure I get the product right, the website right. Um, but for me, so I have, I fill out this whole, I don't know if it's boring to anybody, but <laughs> I don't know if it's interesting to anybody actually, uh, but you asked. So yeah, I come up with a list of questions, you know, anything all over the place. And then I spend some time creating a flow or weaving everything together. Like, okay, I want to start by asking them about their current project. And then I want to go into when they were Vine Star, but then I want to go back to when they were a kid growing up. So I kind of have that mapped out more than sitting down and asking questions. So I always started with like a normal conversation. And then I think the key to being a good interviewer is you have to improvise, right? You, I, I fucking hate when people go, hey, I guess, uh, blah, 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 where are you from? And then they're silent. <laughs> the next question, people don't find talk like that. People interrupt people, which I get criticized for a lot. But people interrupt people, people go on long tangents, people are quiet for a while. So you can't just have bulleted questions to go through them like that. Yeah, I could definitely attest to that because some of the first interviews I've had, uh, I asked, like I said, with you, uh, 30 to 60 second, uh, you know, just think about you. And people talk for 15 minutes straight. And I'm like, uh, they just answered half my questions. So uh, interrupt gotta them. Ask. Cut them off. I mean, you also want to be, you know, polite. You don't want to just say, oh, sorry about that. Let's just go out. You know, you have to have some kind of respect. But I mean, you know, if they're spitting facts, like sometimes I just want to let them do their thing, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you got to remember, you it's your job to control the conversation. So, yeah. of course, there's a respectful way to do it. It takes a lot of finesse. But especially if somebody's getting way off on a topic and you're like rolling your eyes and you're like, no one's going to fucking care about this. There's you have to use some finesse to kind of get them back on what you want to talk about and what's interesting. Cause a lot of people aren't self-aware. They think whatever they're saying is interesting, which is not the case. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I guess it just depends on, on the specific case, but yeah, I've definitely had that. Um, and like you said, it is definitely a finesse to try to make everything work out. Um, and with that, how were you able to kind of, I know you said that you prepare and you have all these notes, so what was uh, kind of like on the back end in terms of the, the camera equipment and do you have a whole team? Is it just you and one other person? What does that look like? Yeah. So um, kind of peek behind the curtain. 
So I'm um, a member of an MCN, a management company, Studio 71. And the reason I went with them is because they have a studio. They have a studio in Burbank. So before, I would have to pay to rent like um, a, a set, somebody's house, somebody's room. And it would depend on where the guests live. So it would never be the same. You know, If they lived in West Hollywood, I'd book one out there. If they lived in Burbank, I'd have to book one out there. So I wanted something consistent. So I went with them. So that's easy. Um, 90% of the time we do it there. Some people want to do it at their house. So if, if we want to do it there, that's fine. It took me a long time to find a camera guy and an editor that I trust and I love. Shout out to Rocky and Daniel. You're the greatest. Um, but we do a three camera shoot. Rocky and Daniel man the cameras. We use lab mics. So audio's on point. Um, you know, we have lighting, overhead lights, overhead booms in case, you know, the lab mics don't work. So we've got a million checks in place. And then Daniel's my editor. So then he it, it's boring. <laughs> he gives me a hard drive and I make edit notes and then he edits. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, I know you don't have to go into too much detail. We can kind of get into the business side of, of you know, the actual money making. I know you have a sponsorship with Squarespace, but what are some, you don't have to go into exact details, but what can like an, an average episode cost for you to, to actually produce? It varies anywhere from $500 to a grand. Mm-hmm. And then obviously there's ways to, to monetize it, like with your sponsors and stuff like that. Um, and what are you able to do or do you actually interview people that are not in, in your you know immediate circle? Like, for example, if there's someone in New York that you want to interview, do you just do a virtual or do you, you just stick with your area? No. Well, the good thing is I live in L.A., so everybody's out here. There are some yeah. in New York, but no, I, <laughs> I've been doing Zooms and stuff lately because we're quarantined. But I'd much rather do it in person. It looks better on camera. Um, looks much better on camera. And plus, you can have a better conversation. Like right now, we're talking different than we would in person. Yeah. Right. It's it's you lose some you lose some some of that uh, via video. So I try to always do it um, in LA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously, getting all these you know a list influencers in LA is is not an easy challenge, especially you know for a podcast. And you know, there's a lot of different ways you can reach out to them, but what is the outreach process for you? I mean, you know, just sending an email probably isn't enough. And so how do you, I know you're like, Hey, I give them a Forbes article, but how do you even get them to necessarily even read the email pitching them about such opportunity? Okay. So let me take you a step back. So the, how I got into this and this will get into how I contact people is I wrote an article about Kate Hudson for Forbes. I was interested in Fabletics. It took forever to put together. You had to go through all this management, all this. When I finally got to her, I only got five minutes. And then when I posted the article, it only got 3,000 views on Forbes. So I go, what? I was so bummed out. I go, what a complete waste of time. But her manager or her PR guy liked it. And he said, hey, you should check out this kid, Jake Paul, and interview him. I had no idea who Jake Paul was. This is three years ago. I had no idea who Jake Paul was. I didn't know what a YouTuber was. I didn't know what an influencer was. I, I'm not part of that world. But then I looked him up. I go, who the fuck is this kid with 20 million subscribers? You know, who is this kid? So long story longer, I interviewed him. And the difference between him and Kate Hudson was he followed me on Twitter. He gave me his cell phone number so we can communicate. And then I'll never forget when I posted the article, I I texted him and said, hey, the article's up. He said, what's your Twitter handle? So I gave it to him. And then I got a notification from Twitter that said, um, do you want to turn off notifications because there's too much activity? It's like, what? I've never seen that. 
I looked and he, he posted, uh, everyone check out this article by Tom. It's lit. <laughs> he put the link, right? It got 100,000 views in two minutes. And I was like, wow, these influencer kids are where it's at. And to finally answer your question, the way I get in contact with these is once I did Jake, I got credibility. So then other influencers followed me. So then when I reached out to David Dobrik, it's not like I'm some random person. It's like, oh, yeah, he was the guy Jake tweeted about. And then once I got verified, that was big because now I kind of stand out from the crowd um, and people can search your notifications by verified only. So then a lot of people with a lot of followers will only search for verified um, notifications. So then I'll show up there instead of having to, you know, get through all the traffic of everyone else's comments and tweets. And so for you, Twitter was kind of like the main thing because you got verified on there. And so it's like, Hey, just, uh, I don't know how Twitter works. I don't really use it, but like DM Bryce Hall in it, be like, tell him a little bit about, you know, your interview, just like a little quick pitch. Hey, I'll get you an article on Forbes. Uh, I've had David Dobrik, Logan Paul, you down question mark. <laughs> that's exactly how it works. And that's, that's essentially know, Twitter, Twitter's not the sexy you know, social media. You're young. You're not using Twitter. I'm sure a lot of listeners probably aren't using it, but it, yeah. it, it's your best chance of getting a hold of a celebrity. You're not, they're not going to read your DM really? on Instagram, right? Emails to management. You're never going to get a hold of them. Twitter's your best chance without question. And a lot of people keep their messages on. So you can actually, sometimes they don't, but um, if they have them on, you can actually DM them, right? So that's your best chance without question. Is that even if you're not verified or is that yep. kind of an even exception if, if you are verified? Even if you're not verified, because every celeb and influencer has a Twitter account and uses it. So um, 99% of them do. So that's still better than an email to some management company. You want to get them to say yes. You don't have to go through their PR people and all their handlers because they'll never let you get to them. And so when you're constructing these messages, what kind of structure do you have in order to make it you know, short but sweet and to still kind of get your message across to you know, what you want, you know, to do with them? Um, see, I kind of offer something different. So what I say to them, are, you know, is simple. First compliment them. <laughs> you know, even if you're not a fan of them, tell them what <laughs> you are. Um, you know, give them specific examples of, hey, I just watched your latest YouTube video, crack me up, super informative, whatever. Um, I'd love to sit down and interview you. Um, for me, I, I offer you a different kind of interview than you're used to. I don't really touch on gossip. I'm interested more on the business side of things, tips for aspiring influencers to get a following. And they jump at that because like a Bryce Hall, even though I asked him about his girlfriend, 99.9% .9 of his interviews are only about who he's dating. No one asks him about how much money he makes per TikTok. No one talks about how he grew. You know, no one asks him for tips on how to become a bigger TikTok person or whatever. So that's attractive to them. So that's kind of how I frame the, you know, the question in the message. Mm -hmm. And where in that message do you kind of craft the credibility side of it? Like, hey, I just had David Dobrik. Is that just kind of like the last sentence? Like, here's some examples. Do you send any links? Yeah, yeah. I send a link to my Forbes articles and a link to my YouTube channel. So when they look at this, they go, oh, okay, this guy's legit. He's done X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I, th I think it's really valuable because a lot of people, they just see, oh, I have FaZe Rug, Logan Paul, David Dobrik, and these people seem you know, for the most part, untouchable, 
with their followers and, and you know they're verified all this stuff and you're just able to kind of rack them up one by one <laughs> and when i was looking at, i was like i was like how's this guy doing this it's not like oh he just gets like this one big person and then like you know just normal thing like it's like on a on a weekly con- consistent basis yeah. so i was just as as a podcaster myself you know, I just want to kind of learn that as well, because I mean, it definitely applies to influencers, but there's definitely a side of that with, with the mentality of how you reach out that can definitely apply to entrepreneurs, um, as well as business owners and influencers as well. So it's kind of like a like a tip that can kind of go back and for all these podcasters listening, it could definitely help them, you know, try to reach out to to uh, higher level people as well. Well, yeah. So I know if you're listening in your car right now, you go, OK. I'm never going to get a hold of Logan Paul. I have 10 followers on Twitter or I don't even have an account. I got no shot. This, this is worthless to me, this podcast episode. But you can do it on a much smaller scale. I didn't start out interviewing David Dobrik, right? I started with small influencers who had a, you know, 100,000 followers right before. So I did a couple interviews with smaller ones before I got to Jake. Um, but I wrote about an influencer marketing for a year before I sat down with any of these people. So you need to have your evidence together. Whether you just have a podcast, then, you know, who are the biggest guests you had on? What's your reach? You know, are you a top 100 podcast or not? Writing is huge. Start a blog, right? I saw you have a blog. You're, you have your own website, which is huge, right? Because you control that. You can control what people see. So you can put any press you've got, any articles you've written, any podcast you've done. You can put it all in one place. And then link that um, to your message. So this can apply to anyone, um, you know, especially somebody who's starting out a podcast. Go, how the heck do I get guests? Well, that's how you get them. And most people are hams. Like I am. <laughs> somebody wants to put me on a podcast and ask me questions. Fuck yeah, why not? I say yes to almost every podcast. Yeah. And there's really nothing to lose, obviously, especially from a podcast host for our perspective. Like, like we mentioned earlier, we love to do this. And so it doesn't really feel like it's like it's work for the most part. It's just a conversation that we're having um, and obviously being able to provide value to the potential listeners. And, you know, maybe your interview or this show actually helped someone start their own show. Maybe they did end up getting a, you know, Logan Paul, David Dobrik, and they kind of went a similar path or they were they were able to get Gary V because of, you know, using some methods. So um, all it takes is one person to to act on something. And for me, the, the show is valuable for sure. And so, oh yeah, so I was, I asked about the, um, the guidelines for, for the interview. Um, but what's the most surprising thing for you that you found in an interview about the behind the scenes life of these influencers? Um, <laughs> Bella Thorne comes to mind. I had no idea she smoked as much weed as she does. (laughs) And everyone go check out the Bella Thorne interview. I did the second one. I interviewed her twice because the visual is so great. I knew it was going to get demonetized and I actually lost money on it, but I didn't give a fuck because it looked so great. We're sitting in her. She's stoned out of her mind. She has an assistant rolling her joints throughout the interview, but she goes, where do you want to do this? Because she got a new house that wasn't really furnished. And we're in her bedroom. She goes, let's just do it in, in my bed. So, so we sit down. She's got like a big Chanel. It was pretty cool, like comforter. And then she put pillows on the, the, the headboard. And we just sat next to each other talking while she smoked weed the whole time and drank wine. So that was, that was different. It was interesting. Yeah. I feel like definitely different than their their TV show characters for sure. Yeah, 
Definitely something you don't see. Um, and so I know we spoke a little bit about um, kind of the how much it costs to do an episode, but let's kind of focus on the business side of the monetization. So what, obviously, like I said, you know, whatever you're comfortable with sharing, but what does it look like now that you've been able to build your your YouTube channel and, and your podcast up to a point where you're able to start to start getting sponsors? Do the episodes pay for themselves? Is it usually, you know, a loss a little bit? What is that kind of structured? Great question. So I lost money for the first year and a half, and I'm embarrassed to say how much, right? I, you know, it's a good point. I have a real job, too. This is not my full-time job. I've got a real job. I'm in sales. I work for nothing related to I'm, I, I, I'm in sales. I don't want to say the name of the company. For a large Midwest manufacturing company. So I sell <laughs> equipment to retail stores. It's so bizarre. So, you know, if you're starting a podcast or YouTube channel, first thing is you can do it no matter what, right? You're a full-time student. You're a mom. You have two jobs. It's fun. Sure, it's some work and you got to make some time. But um, if you're just doing an audio podcast, what does it really cost to do, right? A hosting platform, maybe a good mic. I mean, good internet connection. That's really it. Um, But I lost money to answer your question for the first year and a half. And then um, because of what I do, I've met a ton of huge YouTuber influencer managers who kind of gave me some tips. And really the magic number for, to make some good money on YouTube is it's, it doesn't have to do anything with subscribers. So that's number one. People think, oh, I've got a million subscribers. I'm home free. Uh-uh. Somebody with 100,000 subscribers who have more consistent views will get paid more than the person with a million subscribers. The subscribers is just more of a vanity thing. Like I'm embarrassed. I only have 30,000 subscribers. I don't, have to, you know, I don't feel like it looks enough. But... I have 100,000 um, views per episode consistently. And that's where you need to be to make some, some good money. Now, you can you know, get free product and swag and all that kind of stuff with a relatively small following. You, know, you can be a micro-influencer. There's a ton of benefits to doing that too. Mm-hmm. And so with that, you've obviously gotten to the point where it starts to become a separate income stream for you rather than a liability where you're losing hundreds of dollars an episode. And so with that, how were you able to get to that initial, you know, that goal of you said 100,000 views per episode? Was it just kind of by leveraging the people or did you have any strategy for content and and marketing that you kind of used to get there? Absolutely. So one, it was changing my mindset. So before, you know, if I got 20,000, you know, views an episode, I go, man, that's killer. 20,000 views. That's awesome. You know, um, if I got 30,000, I'd be to the moon. But then once they planted the seed is, Tom, you need to get to 100,000 views per episode. And somebody listening to this, if you're in a car right now, you go, I'll never get to 100,000 <laughs> you know, views. Are you insane? Like that, that number is, well, I thought the same thing, right? I can never get to that number. That's crazy. But once I got my thinking up and go, okay, that is the number to hit. I had to change my whole strategy right? Interviewing a micro-influencer every week and being consistent is not the way to go. To interview three small people and then you interview one person? No. Interview the one big person and don't be as consistent. I know that, that goes against you know, every advice people go is be consistent, be consistent. There is value in that. But as far as monetization, I need views. So it changed completely. Now I'm only looking at huge guests. And huge guests that are easy to work with. 
This is how you leverage um, your guests. And this is very important for everyone listening. You want their audience, right? If you interview David Dobrik and you tweet it to your 100 followers, no one will see it, right? Maybe a David Dobrik fan sees it and spreads it and it kind of grows from that, right? But chances are it could just stop there with 100 views, right? You need David Dobrik to share. And you have to give them something. You have, you have to offer something for them to do it. You can't just ask them, hey, David Dobrik, share this you know, video I did with you. Why? Well, one, you have to ask them, right? And I like to ask them before the interview um, if they'll share. And I'm going I'm to nudge. I'll constantly ask them that. Because if they don't share, I'm not going to get to 100,000 views. So, you know, this applies to everyone. If you have 100 followers, but you're interviewing a podcaster that has 10,000 followers, ask them and beg them to share it. Because what will happen is of those 10,000 followers of his or hers that watch it, some will like what you're doing and stay with you. Not a large percentage, but a small percentage will. And you multiply that by doing it over and over again. Now you've got your audience, not just their audience, right? Their audience comes and goes, but the people that stick around become now your audience. Yeah, and I know you spoke about um, within that kind of offering them something or giving them an incentive. So for someone that obviously doesn't have the connections you do at Forbes, what is another way that they can incentivize them to promote for the episode? (sighs) You know, anything, right? If Maybe you can offer a service, right? Maybe you're an audio guy. Hey, you know, I can, I can do your audio on your next three clips for your podcast. Be happy to help out. You know, um, if you sit down with me and share the, share the podcast episode, or, you know, I wanted to write a a blog, you know, blog post too to accompany this, which, you know, I've got a viewer, you know, I've got 10,000 viewers to my blog a month. So that'll get in front of more people. So, you know, basically you're offering them bigger exposure if they'll share it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of people are listening to this and they're like, oh, it's nice. You know, he, he, he's got a Forbes thing and that's how he's able to get people. OK, the secret's out. Like, that's it. You know, so it's kind of hard for people to step back. And like you said, with the Twitter thing, you can still reach out to obviously you can't start with the, the Jake Pauls and David Dobricks, but you can slowly build your way up. So, for example, um, I think a few weeks ago I had Ellie Zeiler on. I'm not sure if you know, she's the, 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 the she grew three million followers during quarantine. And yep. now what I do is I'm able to kind of leverage that to, you know, and just build my way up and to these next level people. And so a lot of people just kind of skip out on that and they think, hey, it's not even possible. So they don't even reach out. And then that's when they just quit and they feel like they don't have enough and they can't do it. Yeah. And but remember, I, I was doing interviews when I just had my blog, TomWord.com and didn't have a YouTube channel and wasn't at Forbes and didn't have a podcast. I was still getting guests for that. Obviously, smaller influencers, right? But I faked it till I made it, right? I had a beautifully designed website. So it looked legit, right? They don't know that I only have 2,000 people going to my site a month, right? It looks like I've got a lot more. So you look more professional. So you kind of fake it till you make it. But how did you tell us? Yeah. How, tell us, how did you get um, the guest with 3 million followers? How'd you do it? Yeah, so I feel like I feel like in the beginning, just just kind of clarify. I think fake it till you make it is is huge, and especially for podcasts. Because something that I love about podcasts is that people can't tell if you get ten downloads or ten million downloads. 
because and that's why when I realized that, then I knew that I was in the right place in the right business. And yeah. so with that, I think that's really important. And similarly to a blog, right? There's no like YouTube subscriber count on a blog or on a podcast. And so what I did is I essentially I didn't you know use this this Twitter trick that I now learned, but I use email. And I actually sent her a DM and I actually got really lucky with her because I actually got her at like a really perfect time because she's never done a podcast interview because this fame is pretty new to her, right? She, she had, and at the time of the interview, she only had um, a million followers and she, she wasn't verified, like nothing crazy. She was just, just, just getting started. She was literally famous for, I think one or two weeks after that show, she was still responding to DMs. She was still doing all this stuff. So I ended up emailing uh, her, her. I asked her on DM and then she said, Hey, just email me. And then, so she got back to me from there and she didn't even have a manager. Cause like I said, she's only a few weeks old. So she, it was her mom that was just messaging me back and forth just to schedule something out. We scheduled the time. And then from there I made the content and posted it on YouTube and the rest is history. Now what I do just a little back, um, like a little behind the scenes is I get a testimonial and we'll, we'll do that after the show of 15 seconds and 15 seconds about their experience with the show. And now when you were explaining the whole Twitter thing, what I had in my mind is, hey, I'm gonna do, you know, explain what the show is about, everything like that. And at the end, and this is what I was trying to do in an email, is send, hey, by the way, this is what fellow TikTok star Ellie Zeiler had to say about my show. Send the video, boom, they don't have to even click another link, right? It's just all there. And then from there, I can just keep building up, right? So Bryce Hall, hey, Bryce, this is what Ellie thought about my show. He knows who Ellie is, but, Maybe they're not on the same level, but he's heard of her. She looks familiar, obviously, the fact that she also looks like Charlie, but she looks familiar. And then from there, you know, I'm able to get Bryce. And then Bryce, oh, hey, Addison, I just had Bryce on my show. She knows who Bryce is. And you kind of build up from there. So that was kind of what I was personally thinking in my head of building it up. But I think definitely getting testimonials um, on the back end is definitely a lot easier to, to use going forward. Well, you just think what we talked about in the beginning, right? You've got evidence and everyone should do the same thing, right? Even if you're interviewing somebody with 10,000 followers, the beauty of that too is like you just did, you can get in their DMs. They'll respond to every comment, right? I respond to every, almost every comment I get, I respond to. Not the dicky ones that call me old and creepy. Sometimes I do, but most of them I do. But you can get a hold of these people through a DM, right? And you're, just like you said, you're building up evidence. And that's the other thing. You got to extract everything you can from that hour interview, you can get multiple forms of content, right? You can podcast, why not create a blog and write an article from the interview, right? Why not get them to do a testimonial, you know, for you? Why not have them do an intro to your podcast too? You know, there's so much stuff you can, you can get out of them. Yeah, exactly. And for me, just as an example, I do, I know you do some stuff on Instagram as well with the content. I saw the thing you did with Bryce and, and Rug. Uh, but what I do is I typically do a caption social media video, like one of those Gary Vee style where it's like the, the captions and we'll, we'll make one of those for your show as well. And then I also do a quote card, which is just like an image of you and a quote you said about the episode. And what I like about creating those two pieces of content is that it's not Instagram specific, right? I'm able to take that content, put it on LinkedIn, put it on Twitter, put it on my Facebook page. And just just by creating that content, I'm able to be omnipresent without actually having to make content for each different platform. And the most important thing for me with that is making the content as high quality as possible, right? So I'd rather make two high quality pieces of content than eight garbage ones and just be everywhere. So that's kind of the, the thing that I've learned throughout the process as well. That's great. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely something that a lot of people skip out on because they just like, oh yeah, let me just post it on on the audio platform. And and podcasters don't even post to YouTube. And when I see that, I'm like, I'm like, what what are you doing? Like YouTube yeah. is like the best place. And for example, if if I do it on a Zoom call like this, we're already seeing each other on video. So yeah. why why not just just put it on the video? For those of you on the audio, you can listen or, or watch the whole thing on YouTube. But for me, it's just a no-brainer. And so that's actually what, what led me to start my podcast editing agency called Podblade, where we edit audio, video, and social content because we know exactly what they need. And we're not just going to sell them on just audio because we know what they actually need from a holistic perspective to not only maintain their show, but to grow it as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Every, you're right. Everyone should do have a YouTube channel too and should create content that can live on multiple platforms. But the key is high quality, just like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And with creating high quality content comes a lot of responsibilities in a team and, and things like that. So for you, obviously, I know you have a job as well, but what does a day in life look like? I know you do the, a lot of the interviewing, a lot of the preparation. So what does a day in life look like for you with everything that you're doing? Like on top of my work? Yeah. My real job yeah, yeah. Too? Okay. So I've got two little kids too. So that's another full-time job. I've got a one-year-old and a five-year-old. So you know, I'm up early because the kids wake up early. Um, you know, I spend a couple, quarantine's different, but a normal day. Um, you know, spend an hour with them, do breakfast and stuff because my wife leaves for work early. And then um, before, you know, then we'll get done in daycare and stuff. And then I come back and I've got a little time before my real job. So then I'll spend that prepping for interviews. So if I don't have an interview, I'll spend that. You know, I spend just as much time um, reaching out to people as I do prepping for an interview. So maybe it's just sending, you know, 20 DMs or finding out who the manager is and sending emails at work all day. Sometimes I'll take my lunch and, you know, do more of that. Um, and then like, if I have an interview, which I do tomorrow, I'll spend the night before, like tonight after work and after dinner, I'll go to my office. I'll go over my notes one more time. I'll kind of create a flow. Maybe I'll do a little more homework, watch some more of their videos, that kind of thing. Um, and then that's it. And then if I have to write, you kind of just take out the time I was spent prepping for the interview and stuff and just plug in writing. And so you're able to balance having two kids, working a job, having a podcast and writing a blog. So doesn't that add up to like more than 24 hours in a day? Yeah. I mean, honestly, you know, I, I don't really have hobbies. Like this is my hobby. And I just, I was listening to Howard Stern yesterday and I fucking love Howard. There's no one who does a better interview on the planet than Howard Stern. And he had Jerry Seinfeld on yesterday. And, you know, Howard was saying that Jerry was super successful because he put in the time. He, he had the discipline to kind of wake up, write jokes all day. You know, that's what he does. Jerry wakes up every morning and goes to his office and writes. He writes for a couple of hours, right? And Howard was saying, you know, it's because you have the discipline to do it. That's why you're successful. And Jerry said, no, it's not the discipline. He said, it's because of the love. He goes, because you can't, he goes, discipline is not eating that cookie after dinner, right? Okay, you're forcing yourself to do it, something you don't, don't necessarily want to do. I want to do this, right? And so to answer your question, like how, how do I manage all this? Well, this is the fun part for me, right? My day job's not always fun. Watching the kids is always fun, right? But Whenever I have time to do this, sometimes it's work, but most of the time it's the love of it. And, you know, if you really love something, you'll find time to make it work. Yeah, exactly. And with all this 
what kind of do you have a, a calendar? What kind of time management do you use and recommend for other people who are, you know, crazy busy and want to be able to achieve some of the things you've been able to do on a day to day basis? Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty organized. Uh, I follow the system, get things done by David Allen's good book. Um, you know, it tells you how to get your inbox to zero and, you know, manage projects and stuff like that. But really as far as finding time for this, um, and managing my day, everything's got to be in the calendar. You know, I have a safe calendar with my wife. I have my own calendar. I have a work calendar too. And I, but I have them all together. So I, you know, I look at my day you know, the night before. And if I have free space, I'll go, okay, I'm going to write from noon to one o'clock. I'm not doing anything else. Right. Or I'm going to take two hours on a Saturday afternoon when the kids are napping and I'm just going to edit YouTube. So, so those are the things, I mean, it's, you know, no secret. There's, you know, a ton of organization books out there, but for me, it's just having everything in the calendar. And something with that, that I've also realized is, okay, what if the kids don't go to sleep at this and this hour? And then I have to, well, not for me, I'm just talking about your situation, <laughs> but then I have to like, and then I have to adapt. So how do you deal with kind of sudden changes that come up within your calendar and how do you adapt to them? I prepare, I ne- don't wait the last minute because then you're fucked, right? If you have something due tomorrow or, you know, interview tomorrow that you haven't prepped for and the kids have woke up, you know, three times tonight and you're sitting there trying to put them in bed and the whole time you're going, fuck, I didn't do my prep. When am I going to do it? I'm going to choke. No, I started doing prep a week ahead of time. So my kids are up. Okay. Not the end of the world. I can do it the next day. Right. So I overly prepare and I never wait to the last minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to be I, adaptable. Things come up. Yeah. And I think a lot of people skip out on that because they plan, for example, every second of their day. And then when the smallest hiccup comes up, their whole day is ruined. Their sleeping patterns are ruined. And then they're like, I'm screwed. I don't know what to do. And then tomorrow they have an interview or anything like that. And, and their whole week even just completely gets ruined because they're always following the day before. And so I think definitely giving yourself enough time to prepare for something like that um, is a great skill to have. And I think it's really crucial to how you're able to do this on a consistent basis. And you know, with these daily habits and routines you're doing, where do you see this, not only with the podcast, but with, with the YouTube channel, as well as a, a lot of the other things you're doing on the back end, where do you see yourself headed or where do you see the podcast headed in three to five years? Um, well, hopefully I'm still around, you know, <laughs> subscribe, you know, the Tom Moore show on YouTube, make sure you subscribe. Um, hopefully it's still around. I think it'll evolve. Like we talked about before. I mean, I can't continue to interview like TikTok stars, it's, I think it kind of looks ridiculous now, but I mean, in five years, it's like, come on. So I think it'll kind of evolve and it'll evolve into maybe more age appropriate or, um, you know, maybe an older demo, you know, that kind of what I have now, um, different kind of guests to get there. Um, it's tricky though, too, because you don't want to alienate your audience. My audience is 18 to 24 year old women. <laughs> by far that's which is so bizarre that that's that's my demo um so you can't go totally joe rogan on them because all those people you'll lose right so it's kind of slowly kind of move, moving the needle a little bit you'll lose some people as you switch up your content but hopefully you gain some as well so yeah just you know continue to do an interview show continue to get better continue to get bigger guests um 
you know, who knows, maybe, uh, you know, somebody could pick it up, maybe a streaming platform picks it up and wants to put it on there would be awesome. Um, those are lofty goals, but as far as what I can control, I can continue to do YouTube as long as it's around. And if it goes to a different platform, I can make it work on there too. Yeah. And then from there, I know you spoke about the older demographic. Would they still be these social media influencers or would they be more of like business people? Because obviously as you grow up, these influencers are also growing up. So you kind of have to decide the route you're going to go there. Yeah. Um, I, I guess not, not ditching the influencers because that's the reason you're sitting down with me today is because you saw my interviews with influencers, right? That's what I made myself, made my name doing. So I look at it more like, uh, you know, Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon may have a kid guest who's in a new movie who's six years old, but then he may have a 70-year-old actor on the next day. So for me, it's more kind of expanding the guest pool, right? Instead of just looking real narrow as I'm going to only interview influencers who are 16 to 24, right? No, I got to eventually kind of grow out of that and just without losing the influencers, then kind of just adding to it. And I think what sports people, artists, rappers, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And I think what happens over time is your listeners actually end up falling in love with you rather than the guests. And then at, at that point, right. Uh, for example, Gary Vaynerchuk, he sells sneakers, right? He, he has nothing to do with sneakers, but because, I mean, I have, for, for the people in the video, I have all six pairs and nice. I'm, not a, I'm not a shoe guy either, but I got them just because, you know, I, I love what he says and I love what he does. And so at, at the same token, if you're able to build that name for yourself, similar to Joe Rogan, right? People listen to Joe Rogan now because of Joe Rogan, not because of the guest Joe Rogan has on. So at that point, if you, I mean, within the next three to five years, if you can kind of build that to a point where, hey, like people like me for Tom Ward and yeah. who I interact with, not for, I mean, obviously there's still be some, some interest on the other side, but when you kind of build it around yourself, you're able to expand and do a lot of things that you might not be able to do if it's only about the guest. Yeah. And go back to my Forbes example, right? Where they did, they cut it down to two minutes and I wasn't in it that's doing nothing for me, right? Because they don't even, they can't even see me. So how are they going to know anything about me and follow me, right? And you do have to make the interview about you too, just like you did. You've been talking about examples that you think, you know, you showed your Gary V shoes. So people know that about you now. You've got to show your personality because I'm not a vlogger, right? No one is going to want to see me <laughs> talking with camera for 25 minutes and see my boring life, right? So this is my only chance to show my personality going on podcasts and stuff where it's about me more, but you know, even when it's about the guests more, you, you got to show your flavor in there too. You know, you've got to be a part of the story as well. If you want people to follow you too, instead of just coming for the guests and bouncing. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. So Tom, just speaking about everything, I definitely had a great time with this interview and I definitely learned a lot and I'm glad we actually had this interview because a lot of the stuff that I thought was true as a podcast host is now kind of debunked, right? I've, never used Twitter. I've never found value in it. Like you said, even people my age are not really using Twitter that much. So I, I kind of have this newfound strategy and I'm trying to think everything in my head while we're having this interview. So definitely a ton of value. And I know that if I find a lot of this valuable, a lot of podcast hosts or people that are just curious how to start and how to reach out to these untouchable people, right? That's what really dragged my attention is, is how does that work? Like it doesn't even seem real, but you're able to do it and uh, really, really appreciate you hopping on the show just like a final thought where can people find out more about you your social media your podcast any of the other big projects they're working on now's your chance yeah follow me on social guys i'm everywhere and i have the same handle everywhere at my draw tom ward backwards 
at moddraw1, uh, Instagram, um, TikTok, Twitter, everywhere, Facebook. You can follow me there and subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Tom Ward Show, where I interview the biggest influencers in the world. And I've got Lauren Gray coming up. I'm doing Zach King tomorrow. Then I'm doing Brent Rivera on Wednesday. So I've got that. They're my next three interviews coming up. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. And I'll see you guys on the next episode. Thanks, guys.